Welcome to the 30th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is an investment banker's perspective on building a firm for maximum value with Liz Nesvold of Silver Lane Advisors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. I'm thrilled to be joined today by my friend and colleague, Liz Nesvold, founder and managing partner of Silver Lane Advisors, a top boutique investment bank focused on M&A in the financial services sector. Her firm has been consistently ranked as the most active M&A advisor to investment management and securities firm, with a client list that includes many of the most successful companies in wealth management, investment consulting, institutional asset management, and the insurance space. I first met Liz just after she and Silver Lane completed the legendary First Republic acquisition of Luminous Capital then a $6 billion California-based RIA whose principles had broken away from Merrill Lynch only five years earlier. That deal rocked the wealth management space and, in my opinion, had a lot to do with the acceleration of the breakaway movement. The notion that a Merrill Lynch team chose to go independent in 2008 was noteworthy enough because the trend had not yet become mainstream. And it was rare to see billion-dollar teams leave the familiarity of a traditional brokerage firm at that time. Add to that the fact that in only five years, the Luminous folks had built an enterprise worthy of acquisition by First Republic, a leading bespoke private bank for more than $100 million, made it all the more extraordinary and watershed. Liz has promised to share with us today some inside baseball, what it takes to build an RIA with the end in mind, what differentiates a business from a practice, and much more. Lots to discuss, so let's get right to it. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. Delighted to be here, Mindy. Let's jump right in. Liz, tell me about yourself. What led to the birth of Silver Lane? I thought the business of helping firms transact could be done a little bit differently. In hindsight, um, maybe it was a bit of a Jerry Maguire moment when I said I was going to leave to form my own firm. I'd love to say that I had an extensive business plan as I counsel clients, and I know you counsel teams, but most investment bankers are not good business people. And there's probably a corollary to the financial advisor community, but we actually built Silver Lane as a business. And I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about that today with advisor firms. In terms of what we thought could be different, we're a paperless firm. We run very tight protocols. If you can't find a file in 30 seconds or less, we've not done it correctly. We were early adopters of screen and file share technology, which today are very commonplace, but 11 years ago it was not. Also, when we engage with clients, we added a uh, big cultural emphasis to the engagement. That's priority number one when we take on each engagement is to think through that very carefully for the client. The staffing model is a little bit different than the bigger firms. It's high-level touch on every engagement. 
And the biggest thing that is so critical here is no client or relationship squatting. People are rewarded for best ideas with their relationships so we can deliver great results for clients. And as a result, your firm has a stellar reputation. You're a female in a heavily male-dominated industry, something I can relate to as well. And you've managed to stand out from the crowd. So kudos to you for sure. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're going to spend most of our time talking about breakaways that became watershed deals. But before we do, there are a few preliminary topics that are always on the mind of prospective breakaways and those whose firms are starting to mature. So I guess the first question is, why is it so important to begin with the end in mind? Oh, invariably, everybody is going to transact. It could be external or internal, meaning continuity planning. But building a business that delivers franchise value means you're building a business that will invariably have scale and create opportunities for the talent that exists within. And so to follow that, should a new RIA rent or build infrastructure? And does that decision have any impact on the overall enterprise value? I think it's up to the advisor and the team that they have and what they're willing to invest near term. Both models have worked quite successfully. However, if we look back um, 10, 15 years ago, the solutions for a turnkey model just didn't exist the way it does today. So I think there's better access to technologies and turnkey solutions today more than ever. So teams coming out a decade ago would have had to have built more of the capabilities and had more of the infrastructure within their own four walls versus those advisors who are coming out today have a range of opportunities from some um, buy-in to turnkey solutions to a, a full offering. Yeah, that seems to be such a common theme. Virtually everyone I have interviewed in this podcast series, whether it be an advisor who broke away or a leader who formed a firm, talks about the immense cottage industry, the robust cottage industry that is born to support these breakaway advisors and how much more robust it is today than it was 10 years ago. So how does the decision to rent or build impact the overall enterprise value. At the end of the day, if you've rented infrastructure or you've built infrastructure, how does one or the other impact? It may um, different partner opportunities if you rent versus if you've built it all out. So if you've built out the entire infrastructure, invariably you would be looking for someone to invest in a platform opportunity versus somebody who may have rented a lot of the, let's say they've rented the investment offering, they've rented the consolidated reporting and technology. You may be looking for someone who is keen on geography, Phil, team pickup and client pickup. So it's two very different partner types that those respective firms would be looking for. Got it. And how about the issue of capital? And what I mean by that is, while part of this cottage industry born to support breakaways today are the sources of capital that have flocked to the space, the truth is there are fewer sources of loan capital for a nascent business, for a brand new business or one that has not yet been launched. But as a firm gains scale and traction, 
more traditional forms of financing become available to support growth. So when does it make sense for a firm to raise debt financing versus selling equity? Um, On the debt side, it's typically when you're generating profitability. More often than not, it's hard for institutions or funds to lend against firms that are still in burn mode. So crossing over the profitability spectrum uh, creates a lot more avenues for capital support. That being said, there are firms that are turnkey solutions that will support a new advisor turning independent with loans. Um, In some cases, they could be forgivable loans. In other cases, it's more a traditional five-year amort. And in others, it could be a, a loan in the form of a revenue share. So I think there are some earlier solutions that present themselves in the form of partners who are, are turnkey players, for instance, a dynasty that may make that capital available when teams are coming out. Mm-hmm. And how does the decision to either take on debt or equity financing impact the ultimate franchise value or enterprise value of a business? depends on what you're using the capital for. So if it's to reinvest for growth, either forms can be attractive. They both have different, um, I would say, effective interest rates or IRs attached to them. If you are in high growth mode and you are willing to underwrite some debt, it may involve personal recourse, meaning you're personally obligated for the um, Uh, debt on the books. But that being said, you're keeping a lot more of the equity upside. You're underwriting to cash flow and you are keeping the benefit of all of that growth. And I'll tell you, um, there was a group that I spent, I I won't name names, but um, there's a group that we spent a fair amount of time with looking at a mezzanine solution And all the partners liked it because of the upside. They were growing so quickly. They loved it because of the upside that they would maintain. And then at the very end stages, one of the partners said, I don't like debt, actually, because I don't even have a mortgage on my house. And so you concluded that three of the four partners were very, very keen to take a level of a mezzanine, which is a higher interest rate than senior debt. But they were keen to take that. And one partner just didn't feel good about that part of the capital stack. So invariably, they took an equity partner in in the form of private equity because this equity partner agreed to be in the same equity class and share the upside and share the downside. So it it may be more of a a risk uh, element that you've got to assess. Yeah, and it's an emotional component for sure. There's an emotional component to taking on debt, whether whether you've had it before or not. But I also think it's a lot in advisors' DNA mm-hmm. to not take loan capital. That's just kind of how it goes because they live in a world where they're used to moving from one firm to another and they think they're getting a giant recruiting deal free and clear. It real that really isn't a loan is a loan in and of itself as well. Exactly right. You're exactly right. So when might be the right time to think about selling equity or doing a transaction of any kind? And what I'm referring to here is so an RIO firm has already established. What are some of the breakpoints where it might be the right time to think about selling equity or, again, monetizing in some way, shape or form? 
In terms of monetizing, there could be a founder need. So you may have partners that run the gamut in terms of their age or where they are in their professional evolution. And often, if you have partners who are already equitized, it is uh, too valuable a firm to um, push the equity down to the next generation. And so sometimes for continuity planning, it's helpful to bring in an equity capital partner. Also, firms invariably will hit, and this is almost every firm, they will hit terminal velocity at some point where the people and the infrastructure have really hit the maximum ability to generate revenues and you know you need to reinvest back in the business. And more often than not, it's um, firms that know they now need to bring in human capital that will not be client-facing, like a chief compliance officer, general counsel, or COO. That's the point at which you can only wear so many hats. And to take yourself down in terms of levels of cash flow to reinvest in that human capital is often scary. So of the 13,000 or so uh, registered investment advisors that are out there, there are probably a couple thousand that will never make it past one to two billion. And those that do have either taken themselves down into the valley of death on profitability or they've taken a capital partner to reinvest in that human capital without putting all of your your equity at risk. Interesting. Okay, that's really helpful. So let's switch gears for a second. As we mentioned in the intro, the most iconic deal of the last decade, if you ask me, has been the First Republic wealth management acquisition of the legacy Merrill Lynch team that left Merrill Lynch and in 2008 sold themselves under the name Luminous Capital to First Republic. So an RIA that was five years old or so selling to a bank. That was a wow. It rocked the industry when it happened. So as the ultimate insider, what can you tell us about it? I know you were representing First Republic in that transaction, but would love to hear what made First Republic so interested in Luminous and just any thoughts you can share with us that might be helpful. Certainly. You're right. It was a watershed transaction moment and people still talk about it even after five, six years time. But the truth is, it is a rarity for a firm to have been formed, and they were formed out of the crisis. So in May 2008, if memory serves, they came out and launched a business, um, which takes an awful lot of guts to do so. And in four years' time, they were over $5 billion in assets. So when you think about why is this interesting, there was this tremendous growth trajectory within the firm. These folks were amazing. They were probably doing double breakfast, double lunch, double dinners, a lot of organic growth. They hadn't grown to surpass $5 billion by a lot of sub-acquisitions or lift-outs or anything of that nature. They were incredible organic growers. Beyond that, they were in a wonderful wealth creation center. The Southern California marketplace was building tremendous wealth, a very attractive marketplace, great for First Republic to further entrench in that area. The team also brought a strength in alternatives, which was a wonderful boost to First Republic's team. And frankly, it was First Republic's 
first major acquisition in wealth that really helped establish the direction of their growing wealth franchise. So they were probably 20, 25 billion at the time, which is sizable for a bank. But I think today they get credit for 90 billion in um, wealth and other AUM. Yeah. So first of all, I agree with you, Liz. One of the things I think that makes it so interesting or so watershed is the fact that the Luminous folks, the Merrill Lynch folks really left to break away from Merrill at a time way before it was really in vogue to do so. So today there's a whole lot of validity or sanction for people going independent because plenty of people are doing it. In those days, they were really trendsetters. Secondly, You're 100% right. The Luminous deal, the first Republic acquisition of Luminous, followed by the Constellation acquisition, the second RIA based in San Francisco and New York that First Republic did, really, really put First Republic on the map and solidified them as being the hottest brand in wealth management today. So one of my questions is, did First Republic actively seek Luminous out or did they have a more natural organic connection? Like how did it come to be? They knew each other in passing and they actually shared clients together, but Luminous actually hired an investment banker to run a process. And with great credit to Bob Thornton, um, who runs the wealth management business, he lobbed a phone call into us and his pitch was, hey, there's a deal that I'm looking at and we'll probably pass, but I, I need some assistance vetting this. So famous last words. And that, those are usually the words that are followed by, Liz, this will be the easiest engagement you've ever had. But they were actually looking at it in the context of a process. But the wonderful thing that existed was the fact that there was some overlapping clients and it was pretty obvious that there could be um, more collective opportunities with a lot of the um, broader capabilities that the bank had. And certainly given the growth profile that made it intriguing to look, but often um, banks or bigger institutions worry about the context of an auction process. And that's what we were in. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is let's look at it. What can be learned from the First Republic Luminous deal? And I guess one of the first questions is, so we're beginning to understand why Luminous was attractive to First Republic. Why was First Republic attractive to Luminous? And I ask that in the context of most advisors, especially the Luminous folks who were coming from a bank, or actually Merrill really wasn't a bank at the time, but many advisors are really hate the idea of working for a bank. So what made the Luminous folks attracted to First Republic? First Republic had a wonderful brand recognition, and at the time, certainly in the California marketplace, there was clearly a a shared uh, or overlapping clientele. So there was a comfort on the part of uh, the end client um, with such an institution. Um, They certainly brought an awful lot of ancillary services. They had a wonderful um, pool of untapped opportunity with the more ultra-affluent clientele. Luminous did a beautiful job building a pod structure, which created some wonderful scalability for organic growth absorption. But there was probably some support on the mid-level management side that uh, could be um, brought to bear on the part of uh, First Republic. And finally, I would say the the fit in terms of working relationship and cultural compatibility was very strong with Bob and his team. And that matters an awful lot. 
Yeah. So that's one of the things, obviously, that any prospective breakaway wonders or worries about is if I had a crystal ball, if you could guarantee me that at day's end, I will be able to sell my business for maximum enterprise value, that there will definitively be a quality buyer for me, that would take 90% of the stress out of making this move. (laughs) Obviously, we know that no such crystal ball exists. But what do you think it takes to be the next luminous or at least a firm that would be attractive to buyers either at the end of the day or when that firm owner wants to sell some equity? I would say, and it's an excellent question, it really dovetails back to the first commentary about why do you build a business with the end in mind? Because invariably you're building out the attributes that will make you attractive. Number one attribute for these types of businesses is people. This is 95% an intangible asset, and so you're looking to build out a deep and diversified bench of talent. There has to be some management leadership in the mix. Then you've got to think about what else will be brought to bear. Is it really the investment offering, or are you using a turnkey solution? Is it the planning offering that you're really developing, and that's part of your intellectual capital? Beyond that, it's about process. It's about something, building a a platform that's repeatable and systematic, whatever your approach may be. Could be on the investment side. It could be in terms of a more holistic offering on asset allocation and planning. The operations, you have to think about, again, more turnkey solutions for bits and pieces, but it still involves a good management team, tight operations, strong technology, cybersecurity, reinvestment in the business, no regulatory infractions. And then clearly one of the drivers for both Luminous and Constellation Wealth in terms of value attribution is momentum, organic growth. It is so critical to be able to show that a business can grow in absence of the market, and that means organic growth. So it doesn't matter what venues you choose for the organic growth. More often than not, it's client referrals. But you need to be able to show that uh, you can develop business organically if you're really looking to maximize enterprise value. It doesn't mean for firms that might achieve $700 million to a billion in assets that they don't have a franchise value. They do. Uh, it's just a different um, buyer universe and maybe a different valuation placed on the business. And is there a difference between a practice and a business? And why does it matter? Definitely a difference. A practice is invariably what you see within four walls of some of the bigger institutions. And so when people exit and form their own RIAs, they begin as a practice. It's how you evolve the model that will determine and where you are in terms of the evolution of a business. So it comes back to 
all of that build out. It could certainly be a team that is more front office facing that builds wonderful practice value. And right now, firms with, you know, anywhere from 700 million to a billion and a half are in a premium mode because they're more digestible for some of the larger firms. So because you don't opt to develop the business module doesn't mean there isn't a strong premium value opportunity out there. But it comes back to all of the key qualitative drivers of value that we just spoke about, developing the operations more fully, making sure you've uh, really thought through the technology, you've built a, a deep bench that is repeatable, that has got no key man risk. And now you're in a position where you're also driving financial results on the bottom line that shows that you have your own wherewithal to reinvest in the business. That's when we know somebody's passed through the practice meter into the business segment. So Luminous, which was very definitely a business and a growing one and not a practice, sold after only five years of its inception. Wondering if you think that that was too soon. And I ask because we know that under First Republic's umbrella in the past 10 years since they've made the deal, they've more than doubled in AUM and are crushing it in terms of growth in every relevant metric. It sounds certainly like a match made in in financial services heaven. So wondering if they had waited, what might have happened? Would First Republic have gone elsewhere? We don't have a crystal ball, but most firms wait more than five years to sell. So what's your thought about that? I would say um, as a partner group, you have to reflect how you spend your units of energy. And they were growing beautifully, organically on their own. However, they had passed through various levels of critical mass, but back to the pod structure, next step for them, if they wanted to play through, would have been to reinvest in a broader infrastructure. And I think this is really where the assessment was, we can grow organically ourselves. We see tremendous opportunities. It's strategic trappings with First Republic. I don't want to say it was like shooting fish in a barrel, but those guys um, did a wonderful job making use of uh, low-hanging fruit. And my assessment for them was that was a better use of their units of energy than trying to build out a much bigger infrastructure and managing more human capital. Now, they did something that was incredibly smart early on. They brought in someone to wear the CEO hat. Um, often, everybody wants to have that hat when they launch their business and keep that hat. It's a hard thing. Again, back to, I don't run the business here at Silver Lane. I run the revenue side of the equation. So having a key person make the decision to bring in talent to manage human capital was pivotal. So they made that first decision that most people will never make to bring in leadership to have a strategic direction. And they got through many layers of critical mass, as I said before, but now it would be about building out the infrastructure. Yeah. And they hit a ceiling. And I think, look, in any business, that's what we see. Firms come to a point, a place where they're at a crossroads and they've got a choice of, in your words, to either reinvest or to take on a partner. And for Luminous, it was a decision that clearly paid off. So 
do you think that First Republic overpaid for Luminous? We know that the multiple was high. We read about them being paid more than $100 million in the sale or Luminous getting more than $100 million. So how did the multiple paid for the firm compare to other transactions in the RIA space at the time? Without providing too much insight, this will probably be one of the best return transactions along with Constellation that any bank may do. Both firms were high-octane growth players. Both firms drove great profitability on their own organizations as standalone entities. And with First Republic's help, continued the same growth trajectory. A multiple at a premium is a fair value if it is attached to somebody who can show that continued growth momentum, and both of them could. So while I'm not in the middle of calculating what the IRR might be for First Republic on each of the deals, at the time we knew this was going to be um, either side a tremendous transaction result. Fair enough. And I would agree with that. So if you're advising a buyer, typically a buyer wants to pay the least and the seller wants the most. But is it okay sometimes for a buyer to overpay? And what I mean by that is when would you advise a buyer or a client to pay more than market multiples? Um, none of my children are overvalued. Let's start there. <laughs> so they're all worth what somebody pays. But that being said, we can run a process for a firm and you get such dramatically different economic profiles between buyers. And it really depends on how they'll use the asset. So one would argue with the same level of transparency of information, all buyers should come to the same results. But the truth is buyers will place different emphasis on different parts of the business and present different opportunities. In this instance, it was um, strategic, uh, highly integrated transactions that we were looking at. So while there's not a ton of cost savings. There are probably expenses foregone. The biggest opportunity in these situations is the revenue synergy. And there were tremendous amounts of perceived opportunity that has really been brought to bear post both closings. So it is fair to find a way to share some of the spoils if you think you can deliver those kind of results collectively. And so that's really what enables one buyer to pay more than another is they've really examined the opportunity from within and said, we know this will be a home run because we can bring X, Y, and Z to bear. And if it is a home run, we need to find a way to share that value. Yeah. And it seems to me that not only was this a wonderful, both transactions, the Luminous and Constellation deal, which we'll talk about it in two seconds, but not only were they wonderful strategic acquisitions for First Republic, but it seems to me, as we've said before, that those transactions really put First Republic on the map. It said to the marketplace, not just other RIAs, but probably more impactfully in the wirehouse world, 
first republic is a player, where beforehand they were nothing more, they were known to the market as nothing more than sort of a sleepy community bank with a decent wealth management unit. Those transactions really said to the market, we're now a player. And as we look at so many boutique firms or quasi-independent firms coming on the scene, it seems that the cautionary tale for those is to look at that First Republic acquisition of the two RIAs and say, when you're new to the street, you may have to, in fact, overpay or pay more than market multiple if you want to send a message to the market beyond just um, doing this one transaction. Would you agree with that? Um I would say so, and some of it comes back to um, what you rightly point out is is scale. If you're trying to build scale, um, you can do it with you know twelve acquisitions of um, you know billion dollar firms and try to uh, integrate and make it a cohesive platform, or you can do it as First Republic did it um, with the one two punch. There's a scarcity value that's associated with firms that will bring five plus billion to bear. There are just not that many independent players. And so invariably, there is a notion of um, premium value associated with the aggregation of that much in terms of critical mass. And to be able to make an impact when you're a sizable player as First Republic was on the banking side, again, hard to do it with firms that are a half a billion here and a billion there. And I'd point out um, another acquisition recently that a bank just did, and I'm pleased to have worked with them, Citizens acquiring Clarfeld Financial. That is a very large bank making an impact with a $6.5 billion platform and contributing assets over to that platform to be managed. And I think that's another way to make a statement there is if you're a sizable player, Again, it's hard to do it with very small team additions and small acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So let's pivot for a second to the Constellation deal. We've referred to it a couple of times. So Constellation was a bi-coastal $6 billion RIA where the principles came also from the wirehouse world, Smith Barney, I believe. And First Republic acquired them after the Luminous deal. And just wondering what was appealing about that firm to First Republic? How did Constellation differ then Luminous, what was the strategic value there? And was it a good acquisition or was it a good deal for Constellation as well? Yes. Another wonderful transaction for both parties. This team is an incredibly sophisticated group offering, again, holistic wealth, very, very sharp on the investment front. And frankly, some of the most understated rock stars in the business Many people that I contacted, they didn't know Constellation Wealth, so it really spoke to no bragging, just doing, that a firm could have amassed, you know, five, six billion in assets without really being known by the buyer community really was a a big um, plus for them. They're obviously tied into the heart of two of the largest wealth cities, uh, the Silicon Valley, the San Francisco corridor and, and the Big Apple. And for First Republic, who had uh, done a wonderful job building banking around their clients, so following their clients to the East Coast, they had an opportunity to close out two major markets um, with this team. So they had SoCal, 
through Luminous and then had a chance to develop critical mass in Northern California and Silicon Valley, and then also on the East Coast. And so this transaction in particular offered a very similar opportunity to, um, again, I don't want to say shoot fish in a barrel, but to bring a ultra-affluent experience to a lot of the clientele that First Republic already banked. And what other deals have you worked on over the years where the principal spun out of either private banks or wirehouses or other traditional firms? So they were breakaways that formed RIAs and built franchises of notable value. I would say uh, one transaction that we recently did was a firm called HPM Partners run by Kurt Mazinski, who came out of uh, Deutsche Bank's uh, private wealth business. And his team's made up of firms from a lot of different uh, large institutions, including Goldman Zako. And they built a business uh, de novo, so collected people as opposed to um, lifted out a bunch of assets. And we're fortunate enough to have early funding from Howard Milstein, hence the name HPM uh, Partners, Howard P. Milstein. They went from zero, same crisis uh, starting time, to about uh, $9 billion by the time we recapped the business with uh, private equity firm Lightyear. So wonderful, wonderful teams coming out of uh, organizations from New York to Chicago to Los Angeles and really developing a level of critical mass. And it traded for a premium, but that firm was worth every nickel that Lightyear paid. Mm, yeah, it's a great firm. So how robust, Liz, is the M&A market for quality RIAs today? Like, Who are the most active buyers and how has that list changed over time? That's a great question because the list really has changed over time. When I was a baby banker, we won't say how many years ago, most of the deals on the RIA side were done by banks, securities firms, BDs, and then on the asset management side, it'd be insurance companies. Today, it's so dramatically different. The wealth industry is doing a large part of the acquiring, making up, let's say, anywhere from 35 to 42% of the deals in, uh, over last year and this year, year-to-date period. Um, we have aggregators in the mix who have uh, either you know full-on integrators or they may be more financially bent aggregators who have done a great job uh, and have represented uh, almost 25% of the deals from last year. We've got banks back in the mix. They were noticeably absent, I would say, if you looked back five years ago, and maybe they were tending to their own wounds um, back then, but they're back in full force. And you've got a sponsor-backed community, either direct or through other platforms, that also exists today. So it's a very different dynamic. And is it a robust market? It is a robust market. So we're definitely at a point of, um, let's say, the peak year for transacting for the RIA community was 2016. There were 325 transactions that occurred of that, 178 were on the asset management side, so that left 147 that are wealth bias platforms. That is the peak record, and that doesn't include advisors turning independent or liftouts. Last year, there were about 135 transactions in what would be considered the wealth RIA part of the space. 
And those are big numbers because when I, again, when I started way back when, there were probably five to seven deals recorded in any given year. And this still only represents a fraction of the number of firms that are out there. So we do this wonderful chart where every year we track the number of banks versus the number of RIAs, and it's very sharply diverging industry trends. The number of commercial banks has gone down from, let's say, 9,000 in 1998 to maybe there are 4,800 versus the number of RIAs that started around 8,000 in that period. And now we're talking about 13,000 on their way to 14,000. So this is still a cottage industry. It's highly fragmented. And as much transacting as we do, there's still a ton that will occur over the next five to 10 years. Interesting. And so what do you expect that future to look like? What are some of the trends you expect over the next five to 10 years as far as M&A is concerned? We expect to see more players um, move from uh, practice into business, into multi-geographic regions. So not that we'll see you know, another 25 national players, but I think we're going to see a large grouping of regional players. And again, if you went back five, seven years ago, you would not see a number of firms that could have achieved that kind of independence and scale. But with the community doing a disproportionate share of the acquisition activity, we expect to see many larger players. We would be remiss in not pointing out um, focuses IPO, I think that paves the way for other public firms to come. So now we have two that are squarely in wealth, Silvercrest Asset Management, and then we also have Focus. Focus obviously is a portfolio of companies, but both pave the way for others to come on the IPO scene. Interesting. So, okay, one last question as a closing question. If you were talking to, if you ran into at a bar or coffee shop or on the street, (laughs) a prospective breakaway, so an advisor sitting at a wirehouse who is really interested in going independent, and the threshold question or concern from them is, what will the future look like? I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm petrified about launching this and really realizing more value for my business at the end of the day then I could either by staying put and retiring from my firm or moving from one traditional firm to another and getting paid a transition deal and then retiring from that firm. So what would you say to that advisor about going independent or stay in the traditional brokerage space? I would say first order of business, call Mindy Diamond. And I thank you for that. (laughs) Second order of business, call me in five years. In all seriousness, there are so many solutions that exist today. It behooves them to do their homework. Some will be very happy being in a bigger institution, so long as the institution doesn't keep changing the game on them. But many will find a diverse set of opportunities if they look. And there's no question, as long as you hold client relationships, as long as you do what you say you're going to do for those clients, as long as you do that with like-minded teammates, there will be franchise value. But truly, this is the greatest opportunity for turning independent that we've seen in the 
25 plus years that I've covered the space. And I'm at it 20 years and I would agree with you. It's the greatest time we've ever seen for sure. Liz, I can't thank you enough for being our guest today. Your thoughts were insightful and incredibly helpful and I'm grateful. Thank you so much for your time, Mindy. Liz shared so many smart insights with us, but I think her most sage counsel is begin with the end in mind. How one builds a firm affects everything. Most importantly, the value you will garner for your life's work. If you're thinking about building your own RIA firm, Liz says build it with the right attributes, the factors that will make your business most attractive to a buyer. Those factors are a deep bench of talent, strong investment offering, momentum and growth, solid infrastructure, technology and operations, talented leadership, and an impeccable process. In our next episode, Brett Oley, co-founder and managing partner of Oley Kinser Concierge Wealth, joins us. This former UBS advisor will share what inspired him to break away at a time in his life when many would have chosen to wait things out. 16 months later, and he's thrilled he made the leap when he did. It's an interesting and relatable story, so I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email me or call if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.